Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 413, and I'm joined today by a wonderful guest, the legend, Mr. Jimmy Carr. I was well excited when this one came in, because I'm a big fan of Jimmy, and he doesn't do many podcasts and hasn't done many podcasts. So, um, yeah, I was excited to jump on Zoom and have a chat with him. He was here to talk about his new book, Jimmy Carr Before and Laughter, a life-changing book. But the book's about his life, so it was really just a normal Distraction Pieces episode where we talk about anything and everything over over his whole career. So, uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. If you're new to the podcast, um, ch- check out some previous episodes. We mention a, a, a Brett Goldstein, a Brett's been on. We mention, I think we mentioned Stuart Lee, who's been on. Um, just generally, I've had a long list of comedians on from Frankie Boyle to Sarah Pascoe, Catherine Ryan, Russell Brand, Fern Brady, Ashlyn B. So many people. I'm drawing a blank now completely. But basically think of any comedian and I've probably had them on. Russell Howard, R- Russell Kane, all the Russells. Um, yeah. Loads of really good comedians. And I've got Paul Chowdhury coming up in a in a week or two. So um, keep your ears open for that one. Obviously, we're brought to you as ever by speechdevelopmentrecords.com. We've just redone the web store there, actually. If you want to go and have a look, you can get all my merch, all the podcast merch, all my music stuff, all sorts of stuff from my record label. You can get my Time's Best-Selling book, uh, the, the Distraction Pieces book, Time's Best Seller. Yeah, there's loads of good stuff over there. Go and check it out. You can also head to patreon.com forward slash Pip if you want to support in that way. I do pretty much fuck all on Patreon, um, but that's why it's only like a dollar a month. It's one of them where if you like, think, I'd like to support this. This comes out every week, has been coming out every Wednesday for over six years. I'll get on board with that, but you don't have to. I'm not selling it well. I'd rather you spend your money on Jimmy's new book because we had a wonderful chat. So this is episode 413 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Jimmy Carr. Right, I'm recording too. Right, I'm here today with Jimmy Carr. How are you, sir? Obviously, you're you're having to do a lot of of interviews and s- selling of your new book. How's that all going in general? Listen, I like it. I, having writing a book is hard. It's like it's a ball like. And in the in the lockdown, uh, comics, all comics, got a call, and they got a call, and it said, "Look, you either do a podcast or you write a book." I think I made yeah. the gentleman's choice. But <laughs> having written a book is great. I like talking about it afterwards, but actually writing the thing is like it's a year of your life. It just takes so long. Yeah. And, and I, I noticed as well, there's no feedback loop when you're writing a book. When you do like a, 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 a show, when I, when I test new jokes, I get feedback immediately. Like every 20 seconds, there's a laugh or there isn't. And it's binary. That's good. That's bad. They like it. They don't like it. But with a book, you write it for a year and then, you, and then you're waiting for this. Is it good or is it shit? Yeah, that must be a massive ad- adjustment, right? Again, going from the most immediate to the least immediate yeah. of, of of mediums. They, it's exactly that. Um, 
How are you finding that? How, I mean, I'm, are I'm, you nervous about this I'm moment? This, about, this finally finding out if it's good or not. I'm nervous, but I, then <laughs> a couple of my close friends read it. A couple of my my mates read it, and they liked it. And it had the the reason I, I sent them early copies because I went, look, you got to read this and tell me if it's because I wrote the book. And my friend Amanda Baker, who's like directs comedy shows, I, I used her a lot to kind of as a sounding board going through and sort of began with the idea of the book was it would feel like meeting me. The idea yeah. of the book is like, it's like we go for lunch and go for a three hour walk afterwards. And that's a little slice of me. That's, this is what I'm like. So yeah, half it's funny stories and a few showbiz anecdotes and that stuff. And half of it is quite a serious, like it's not a small talk conversation. It's light, no. it's funny, but it's like a, okay, we're talking about the real shit, proper life. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, speaking of serious and the real shit, before we get into the book, can we quick quickly talk a little bit about we all we recently lost obviously someone very close to you mr sean Locke, and just what a legend on on a thing that i a thing that i saw a lot of was people saying it's a shame he's known mainly for panel shows because his stand-up was so good and 15 stories high was so good now they're two of my favorite things ever but i genuinely think panel shows found the perfect habitat for Sean Locke's comedy of mind. He's so he's the perfect host, right? I think you have to step back and see what panel shows are. Panel shows are, it's a magic trick, right? It's yeah. three card months. We're fooling you. We're saying this isn't stand-up. We're talking about the news. And then yeah, we do stand-up yeah. routines. Yeah. And exactly. Sean was, Sean was incredible. I think the reason Sean was so good was because when you think about what jokes are, right? What great jokes are is that they're, they're, it's the sudden revelation of a previously concealed fact. You're you're sort of telling one story and then that you, you make an assumption, the audience makes an assumption in that first story that, that turns out to be erroneous in the punchline, right? And Sean's, yeah. his whole, half of the setup is how he looked and how he carried himself. And he was like a man's man, quite sort of blokey. And so yeah. when he was doing these surreal turns, it was so much more of a shock every time because yeah. he, he had this sort of demeanour of just sort of a bloke and then suddenly it's this incredible mind it was brilliant. It's brilliant. Like this brilliant, light, surrealist comedy coming from this sort of bloke who's got kind of yeah. a grumpy demeanour. It was fantastic. Yeah. It was, it's kind of like when you, when you hear Susan Boyle sing and you go, I can't believe that voice is coming out of that lady doesn't look as if she would have that voice. And it was kind of the same with Sean. You go, I can't believe that bloke would be, would be saying that. And it's, it was just brilliant. Brilliant to work but again, with as well. It's, it's, it's testament to his writing that that, maintained as well it, it that, that initial impact l l like a susan bowl that impact is the first time and then yeah. you're like all right well she can sing this is amazing but sean even once you'd got past that it just he continued yeah he was to surprise brilliant i think a brilliantly funny character and you know also you know, a friend and a lovely man and obviously there's the human side of it the you know he was a, he was a father and he was a husband and yeah. uh, a, a friend to lots of people and you know, grief's an interesting thing. I think we, you know, people don't talk about grief enough. There's a real physicality to grief. I got sick when he died. Like I was like, I cried a lot on the day and then it hit me kind of 24 hours later. I got like a flu and I lost my voice a bit and I just felt wrecked. And mm. it was interesting. It was like, it really, uh, it really reminded me of what a gift laughter is and what a gift, yeah. you know, brutal jokes are. Because I went out and I had tour dates. So I went out and, you know, you weren't particularly in the mood, but I went out and did shows. And those shows, the kind of, the sort of the, 
six or seven nights after his death were so joyful, like to go out and laugh and to go out and to... And that's why I think brutal, edgy jokes have got such a tremendous value because when do you need them? You you tend not to... You don't really need a laugh a lot of the time. You're fine. Life's all right. Tickety-boo. But when something bad happens, a bereavement, an illness, bad news, you lose your job, money worries, kid worries, whatever it is, that's when comedy, that's when laughter, humour has a huge benefit because it means life isn't so brutal and hopeless and awful. It means that you can laugh and you can't be frightened and laugh at the same time. Yeah, there's the infamous example and story of the telling of the aristocrats joke after 9-11 when no one was joking. Gilbert Godfrey, when no one was joking and he goes in with just the most offensive, aggressive, (laughs) unpleasant joke. And it was what was needed at the time. It was think, exactly what could cut through, right? Yeah, I think there is that thing of like, humour is also a way of processing. I think people often ask that, that question of like, oh, is anything off limits? And it tends to be stuff that isn't done yet. The stuff that hasn't been resolved. So there was always a thing in the UK about you couldn't really joke about Hillsborough because, yeah. you know, there, there was no closure. There was no justice. It was, still, it was an ongoing open wound. So yeah. you couldn't, you couldn't make light of that. You couldn't process it. But, you know, something like, what's a good example? The Titanic. Yeah. It's like, I, I'm sure no one joked about that for five years. I don't think yeah. people were joking the next day about it, but then, then they started to kind of process and it was, it was fine. And I think in our culture now, we tend to, we process things through, through jokes. And they're not for everyone. I mean, I've always loved that quote, you can joke about anything, but not with anyone. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, love it. and it's different for different people. Some people like the rough stuff. Some people not so much. I think your sense of humour is a little bit like your taste in food or your sexual preferences. How spicy you like it is very individual. And it, kind of, it feels like you don't get to make a decision on liking spicy food or yeah. kinky sex. You don't get to make a decision yeah. on that. That's just who you are. Same with the sense of humour. Some people like it. Some people don't like it. Live and let live, baby what is offensive to your palate yeah um taste wise or or sexually is very specific to the individual yeah it might be someone else's favorite meal yeah um, it's, it's weird to think isn't it like it's <laughs> it's a great thing with a sense of humor i think it's a it really keeps you very grounded as a comic because if you think i'm funny you're right and if you think i'm not funny you're right yeah it's mad isn't it you you you, you touched upon just now, and I noted it in the book because I thought it was wonderfully described construct of comedy, as you say, the sudden revelation of a previously concealed f- f- fact. And I think you're one of the modern masters of really boiling that down. If you go to to, to classics, it's you've got your, your the, the Stephen Wrights and your Mitch Hedbergs. Now, as said, I think Anthony Jeselnik is as good as it gets. Yourself, Milton Jones, on really bob. Boiling down that, I'm leading you in one direction. Here's here's the punchline. So, who were your influences in in that kind of d- d- distilling of comedy to its purest uh, form? Yeah, I mean, for me, sort of starting out, it was that thing of like I liked fastballs. I liked the idea of like going on stage and like bang, 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 like not giving the audience a second. That sensation of when you yeah. see a. I was a comedy fan before I was a comedian, so it's that sensation of laughter that it's uncontrollable that you're in the room and you're a bit giddy with it and you can't listen to the next one because you're still laughing at the last one so for me it would have been emo phillips was a big influence and yes, Stephen wright was a big influence and it was like gag writers were that so kind of the old school guys 
And I liked people like Don Rickles and Bob Hope. I liked Don Rickles' kind of crowd work. I liked the idea of like doing stuff that was in the room because that felt as soon as I started getting comfortable with doing crowd work, I felt like, well, this is the thing that people, it's like doing real magic. It's like, yeah. like the other stuff, like you've written a show and you're presenting this show and the jokes are working. But then when something happens in the room that could only be happening in this room, and I think it's getting more exciting now because people are so, their lives are screens. Like you get up in the morning, you check your iPhone, you look at the sat nav yeah. on the way to work, you watch the morning news, you look at a screen all day, you go home and what do you do to relax? Stick on the telly. It feels like yeah. screen, 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 yeah. screen, screen. Going out and having a live experience seems like such a powerful thing now because although we're incredibly connected more so than ever, we feel more alienated. And actually the reason people are drawn to going to, not even concerts, but going to like festivals and going to comedy shows is because they want to feel part of a group, part of a tribe. They want, yeah. you, we want to laugh, but we want to laugh together. Yeah. And 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 again, it's that it's it's those unique moments at a live show that make them exciting and and yeah. and you're known for your crowd work and audience work but it is a weird thing that when a show is recorded and put on netflix or whatever else that moment is now for everyone the beauty of of, of touring is that moment only happens there and it yeah. can only be regaled or told by people well, no, I mean, and, I think there's, there's a rumor spreads yeah it's a you, you know, for Netflix, you want it to be something that everyone can enjoy this moment. Yeah. But, like, the funniest jokes in the world are not from comedians. The funniest jokes in the world are going to be in-jokes with you and your mates and your family. It's, yeah. it, you know, and at best, I think, with a comedy show, when you're in the second hour of the performance and it feels like we've been here for a while and we know what's funny and what isn't funny and it's a safe space, that's where you can kind of have... It, it's like in-jokes for this group. We're a gang just this evening... Just these thousand people here tonight, it's us against the world. There's a lovely moment yeah. to that. There's a real sense of community. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of senses of community, I live in a small town called Stamfordly Hope, and I'm just up the road from Greys. And you often do warm-up shows in Greys and, and have done for a while. And, again, some of those stories spread in that at one, the Greys Civic ended up on fire, and, yeah, and no, you had to deal with that. No, that was great. There was a, there was a fire at like the like the stage is kind of, you know, I'm on stage. Stage left. There's like a door, like a fire exit, and there's some bins outside, and the bins were like set on fire by some. I love that the fire is outside the fire exit. It's, it's literally become so literal. And then literally, I was kind of on stage going, "I'm in the this fire." This is the normal exit, and this is the fire exit. Here's the fire. Here's the fire. You can exit by the fire. <laughs> and then no, but here's the thing: there were five guys from the local watch, the fire crew, on the front row. We just got up and went, oh, yeah, wow. we saw this. Not a bother. Like they were back in 15 minutes and bang, put that out, get the guys. Great. We'll continue with the show. It was nothing Amazing. to them. I love it. Um, and uh, another one I've, I've heard, heard tale of is, an, again, another one in Greys. Only 10, 15 minutes into this, this set is the way I was told it. Someone had a heart attack. Ambulances had to come. They had to come and be and 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 be removed and the reason i heard about it was you were respectful and then your remark after he was clearly okay and taken away was this would be the the best opening to an episode of casualty ever um and, and, and again, uh, listen i i'd forgotten i said that that's pretty funny uh that sounds like me <laughs> yeah i mean look, all i would say is uh uh you know people people you know occasionally get sick of the show uh no refunds no refunds there's no <laughs> I don't care how much of a heart attack you have. There's no, you can't get that money back. I, you know, 
Try and get, yeah. you know, my advice would be to any listeners that are thinking of buying a ticket to my show, and I'd recommend it. It's very funny, but cut down on the cholesterol, please, people. I don't want that disturbance again. <laughs> <laughs> don't want things to get messed up in that way well there's a bit of advice there and um the way you've approached the book is it is very reflective but it's also it is kind of trying to connect and and, and make things relatable and make it kind of life advice as such rather than just you regaling your tales from your time kind of talking about what you've learned from I think the it's, good it, and the bad I, I wanted it to be kind of half and half half about me half for you so it's that thing with most biographies i read i think oh, this guy talks about himself a lot he's like is there nothing about me in this book because you know the way that we process things so i wanted it to be half about the reader and half about their journey so something that you could read and go oh actually this guy used to work for a big oil company and then became a comedian but how do i how do i change my life what what am yeah. i going to do and so to give a little bit of you know th- th- this would be the advice i would give someone if we went out for a walk or lunch this would be okay what i think you should do is this this is how i think the world works these these are my beliefs and there's nothing special about me i mean i've i've had a you know good career in comedy but there was nothing to indicate that i would do that when i was 25 I didn't yeah. leave my job to become a famous comedian and travel the world. I left to join the circus, to, to go and do something more interesting and exciting. And success yes. for me happened much sooner than people think. Success for me wasn't fame and fortune of being on TV. Success for me was like playing the comedy store, making, m- making a living off my wits. That was for yeah. me. That As soon as that happened, I went, right, I've sort of made it. Yeah, yeah. How, wh- wh- what was... What was it that led you to work in for Shell? Or was it in their marketing or in their in their in marketing? Yeah, no, I wasn't. Yeah. I wasn't on an oil rig. That would not have suited me. No, I was like, yeah. I suppose I didn't really make a big decision in life until I was in my mid twenties. I was like, yeah. just I was just sort of rolling through. So it was that thing where you go. I went to school and I did okay, and I stayed on to do A levels because everyone did, and then I went to university because everyone did or pretty much everyone and then I got a job at the best company I could because everyone was getting a job and then yeah. it was like you turn around three years later or four years later and go the fuck am I doing whose life is this and you yeah. you kind of do and I think sometimes it's that thing where the good is the enemy of the best you you know your life's okay it's pretty good you've got a lot to be grateful for but it's not good enough and yeah. I think it's okay to be dissatisfied sometimes and to say okay well, what, what do I want in life and those are the big journeys, aren't they? One, one journey in life that people sort of talk about as if it's obvious is getting what they wanted. And they talk about yeah. the, you know, that's always a mix. There's two great myths in our, in our world about talent and hard work. Either someone, oh, Michael Jordan, he's so talented. And, you know, Elon Musk, he works so hard. Uh, bullshit. It's always a mix of the two, you know, th- those yeah. things. Yeah. But really, before you get to that, those stories you have the thing of like finding what you want to do. The key question in life is what do you want? I think wishing wells work. I think wishing wells are real, but they work way before you think they work. Yeah. Because they don't work when you throw the coin in. The the magic is when you think about what you want. Yeah. If you really know what you want, life's a bit easier. If everything was possible, here's what I would like. It's like, right, we'll start working towards that then. But sometimes you ask people like, what you know, what would you do... If you, if you won the lottery and they go, you know, they don't get past the thing of going, I want a million pounds. And a million pounds isn't anything. You're not answering the question. If that's what you want, yeah. you know, that's like, that's a methodology. I always like that thing of the analogy of money. People never talk about money, but it's interesting, right? 
Yeah. Money's like a magic lamp. You, yeah. you know, you, you, you can rub the lamp and wish for something, but you have to know what to wish for. Otherwise, all you've got is a fucking lamp. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's perfect. Well, I mean, I really c- c- connected w- with reading that part of of your story because I was I was very similar. I was working in a record store until I think twenty four or twenty five, and then I quit to do music and got to tour the world and all these other things. But it's so easy in our society to write things off as oh, it's a means a means to an end. College is a means to an end, and then I'm at uni, and, and then I'm in this job. But we forget the end part. And the end part is really important. You need to decide when that end is. And what it looks like for you is at Shell, you went, this is a means to an end. Well, let's bring the end forward and, and, yeah. and start getting on with it and, well, it is that, and see what's it's next. It's that truth, isn't it, about our society. We spend so much time and effort uh, buying things we don't need to impress people we don't like. Yeah. If yeah. you can get off that roller coaster, uh, you know, that, that treadmill, your sort of life is a lot easier. Yeah. Because it is that thing where you go... Listen, it's easy. Where I'm calling from now, it's easy. But remembering when I was kind of 26, 27, like traveling around doing sort of gigs for no money, and I've, I've never been happier. The freedom of that, the, the, the idea of going, well, I'm just doing what I want with this incredibly precious thing, which is life. Yeah. How, how, how mad is it, though, that when you get what you want, you start to, it starts to warp what you wanted? Like, I remember those early days of doing gigs for me. If there was ten people in the room, man, I'm living the dream. I'm yeah. I'm performing in front of people. Four or five years on, when I'm expecting crowds of a thousand, a couple of thousand, then the idea of ten people in the room is like, ah, oh, was it even worth turning up today? And you have yeah. to keep an eye on that, I think, and, and, and make sure you're going all right. Remember what it is I love about this, because once you're in the industry, from your side, particularly at your point, it becomes about the Christmas DVD sales. Um, it becomes about what panel sh- shows you're on. It becomes about all these other things. And it's easy to forget what you actually love yeah, I, about this I shit. think it's, it's, it's really interesting, that COVID thing that happened where we, you know, slowing down and thinking about, well, you know, it's the journey. It's always, yeah. I mean, that's like in every self-help book, they have to say that five times. It's the journey, not the destination. That's the law, right? Because yeah, yeah. it, it, ultimately <laughs> it's the process. Like you like performing. How many people you're performing in front of? Well, I mean, any more than 50 feels like an audience to me. It's like, well, yeah. you know, 2000 or 2000 is easier than 50 because you, you know, you just have to win over the majority and you're golden. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it is interesting that thing of like uh, assessing your life and not kind of getting caught up in, in however you're keeping score. Yeah. You know, that thing of like, oh, I need to sell more things or I need to, how big's the podcast or, uh, yeah. you know, am I, am I the, the biggest or the best? You go, I, I don't think there's, I think there's often that thing of like comparison is the thief of joy and you're comparing your life to someone else's life or whoever it was that started at the same time as you or like, you've like I think a lot of people have got kind of frenemies where yeah. I think if, if you've got a friend and their success isn't your success, if you've got a friend and they find a lottery ticket and win a million dollars and you're not fucking over the moon for them, that's not your friend. Stop hanging out. If, Mate, you're not, I was... if your success isn't their success, fuck it, walk away. About... Two weeks ago or a week ago now, a good friend of mine won an Emmy and I was so pleased to find out I really like him because I didn't have any j- jealousy or annoyance. So I, I, Who won the Emmy? Uh, uh, Brett Goldstein. Oh, I'm sure of course. You, yeah. you know I mean, Brett as well, right? Yeah, he's like, it was a really lovely, uh, it was a great speech as well. It was really funny. Amazing speech, yeah. I've been asked not to swear, so this is going to be fucking short. 
So <laughs> funny. Uh, Easy, straight it's, to the it's point, a great right? show. Uh, Ted Lasso is just a great show, but it is it yeah. is lovely when you go. I think that's a really good thing of like if you if you've got a friend and you're not happy for them when something good happens, or there's a bit of Schadenfreude when something bad happens, then fucking don't hang with them because that's not yeah that's not a real thing or like. But it's it's a it's a weird thing. Like there's nothing in doing better than someone else. There's nothing in it. Who gives a fuck? But being better than your previous self is everything. That, and yeah. that's the only thing you've got to beat is you last year. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to write better comedy routines. I'm trying to kind of, you know, get that put more into that and, and to, to try and focus on it a bit more now and refresh the tour more often. And I'm loving it. I'm, I'm really liking that thing of like the process is everything. I love that. Well, I mean, you spoke about how a, a lot of people found the, this pandemic um, to be a period of reflection on looking back on your life. You can't get more reflective and looking back than, than writing a, a book <laughs> yeah. a, a, about your life. And one of the things that jumped out that I didn't know at all really was your your Irishness and 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 your your feeling of Irishness and your connection to, to Ireland. Uh, can we talk a little bit about that? I, I know you, you said you'd, you'd go there every a couple of times a year. Um, just outside Limerick, right? I love Limerick. I know it's got a bad reputation, but yes. it's always one of my favourite places to tour, one of my favourite places to go. It was amusing to think that your parents went from Limerick to Slough, yeah. two places that aren't known for their opulence. No, from uh, I tell you what, I tell you what, my parents liked shit opulence. towns. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a weird one. I mean, I do feel like I was slightly. Um, I mean, you know, I'm I'm a first generation. Uh, you know child of immigrants you know they came over in the in the early 70s and uh had us here and then it's that sense of sort of not quite belonging there's a weird thing where you speak a bit differently at home to how you speak at school and then when you go yeah. away in the summer holidays you you come back with an accent and then that gets kind of knocked out of you at school and you feel a little bit other and i think that's a very it's a very healthy thing to feel like a little bit out of it because i think as yeah. a as a comic certainly there's a there's a sense of my friend Alan Havy came up with the phrase, we're out for ourselves, but in it together. And it feels like, yeah, yeah we're like, yeah, we're, we're sort of on our own, but there's a camaraderie to being on our own. We're sort of doing our own thing, but there's, there's other people on the journey. Yeah. Do you think that equipped you well, subconsciously, I guess, going forward in, in, for your career in comedy? Because you had to learn to adapt on, on the fly. Because as I said, if you're in Ireland and you're, the person well, of who course. speaks with a very British accent, that's not going to go down well. Of course, the thing is, you never fit in because in Ireland, I'd be the Brit. Oh, yep. these, these Brits and my mum would, you know, the Brit boys. And, and then back home, you'd be sort of Irish. And yeah. there, was, there was not a cachet to being Irish in the late 70s, early 80s because there was too many things blowing up. Well, you yeah. know, it was kind of that, yeah. the heyday of that. So it was, Yeah, the charm was off for a while. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a strange one, but it was... Um, yeah, it's odd. I do feel like there's a there's a there's there's something to it. There's something nice in having that, that Irish heritage. Mm. I, I feel it, and I think it's you know how you feel is is kind of everything. I, I present as a very British kind of uptight home counties kind of <laughs> you know educated beyond my intellect. I think I don't know. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, I like I like the fact there's some Romany blood in me, and I feel like. I feel slightly with the career choice that I've made, the life that I have is quite, I travel a lot. I can really relate to that 
traveler lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, I've got a house, but I feel like if I was tooling around in a caravan, it's not far off. Like I'm just, I'm on the road. I like yeah. being on the road. Yeah. So, so what did you kind of see yourself doing when you were a child? Were you always wanting to do comedy? Because obviously, as I said, it was a late career change. As no, such. it wasn't. So, it so wasn't. what was the plan? I didn't even, here's the thing. I'm known for being a creative guy, right? I'm a comedian. I didn't even have the dream. I didn't even yeah. have, I had such a lack of imagination as a child because you're only really, like the television or films were like magic. That, that was like a magic other world that no one had access to. It's crazy. Yeah. I might as well have dreamt of being in Star Wars as being a comedian on stage. It's like yeah. another world. So my life was quite sort of blinkered in terms of going, you can do what other people do that are around you. And so yeah. I, I remember like when I was about like, I guess 14, 15, like people started talking about universities and like Oxford and Cambridge being like, oh, they're the best ones. They're really good. And they're like going, oh, I should, I should go to one of those. And like thinking, but you, you only, that only becomes a dream when you hear about it. Yeah. So I, yeah, had, exactly. I, I you know, watching TV, I just thought was, and there wasn't a lot of stand up around when I was a kid. It was more, there were sitcoms and there were funny shows. And I remember th- stuff like the young ones being huge. And Vic and Bob being amazing when I was in sixth form, like thinking this is the funniest shit I've ever seen. But there wasn't a lot of live comedy. There wasn't a lot of people doing live stand-up gigs. And now there's yeah. suddenly this golden age of stand-up. Yeah, and I it, 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 it is timing. now a, a potential career path rather than something you want to do because you're, yeah, you're it funny. wasn't. There wasn't much of a career path when I started around the year 2000. It didn't feel like, you know, it felt like it was kind of walking in on a graveyard and then yeah. it suddenly popped. Suddenly there was this kind of um, resurgence. And I think it's, there's an awful lot of talent out there. There's loads of funny people doing funny things. And it seems comedies are, it's a lovely industry to be in because the more great stuff is out there, the bigger the industry gets. So no one's taking bread from your table. I'm not in competition with other comics. I'm yeah. in competition with bowling alleys and cinemas and yeah. mini golf, <laughs> yeah. you know, because it's that thing of like, I want people to come and see live comedy. I want people to have that experience. What yeah. do you want from a night out? You want to have a laugh with your mates and then some, have something to talk about. Great. We got you. Yeah, it's perfect. Well, you mentioned Bob Mortimer there, who I think arguably is the greatest human to ever live. It's him and Alexander the Great. It's, it's a it's a toss up. But <laughs> he, 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 he had a very quick rise. Like he went from... G- going and watching Vic Reeves in a comedy club to being on TV within a matter of months or a year or so. And yours, you touched upon yours being quicker than people realise, but even the realised is pretty swift. As you say, you started around 2000 and by 2002, you were hosting Your Face or Mine, which was a a, a cult classic at the time, which again, to go from... Oh, I'm working in Shell. I might try this stand up to being, oh, I've got a TV show, essentially. But that, that it's was pretty a, swift, right? I think that's a, what well, it is and isn't. I think I got 10 years' experience in two because yeah. I went out every night and I did yeah. multiple shows every night. So it is that thing of going. You quit what you were doing to make it your full time rather than It's that thing of like part-time. going. I, I don't know what the analogy that people would get is, but the, it's like I didn't go to the gym once a week, I went three times a day. So I went, I wrote all day and I did gigs every night and I tried new things. And I, I was very conscious of not doing the same 20 minute set for more than a week because I went, well, it's, I'm not getting a new experience here. 
I, I know that yeah. stuff works. So I'll try new stuff, new stuff, new stuff. So, and doing Edinburgh shows, we have the Edinburgh festival, which I think people are vaguely aware of, but if you're from a working class area, if you're from Slough, no one's going to Edinburgh. Yeah. No one's going to the festival. No one I knew went to the Edinburgh festival when I was growing up. And, yeah. and then you become exposed to it and go, I should have been going to this since I was 14. Why was I going to Spain for two months? Nothing's happening in Spain, but skin cancer. Yeah. What, what do you want from a holiday? You want fun. Well, go to the Edinburgh Fringe. That's where they make fun. And there's fuck all else to distract you because the weather's shit. Yeah. It was, it was, yeah. You know, that revelation of going, I can go to this every year and there's, there's an amazing fun to be had. I felt like I was kind of playing catch up at 26. So I went out to clubs every night. There was a club, there's a great circuit in London of kind of new, new clubs uh, yeah. where you could just try five minutes of stuff. And you would only have to turn up two or three times before you became a bit of a face and people would go, yeah, go on, try five minutes. And then if yeah. you were in any way good, if you had jokes that were joke shaped, then you, they'd invite you back. I think there's, there's so, so much in all scenes that is, is perception. If you turn up and seem like you know what you're doing and you've, as, as you say, you've got the jokes, then people will assume you've been doing this a lot longer than you maybe have. I think I got on TV because I had a suit. I wore yeah. suits to gigs because <laughs> th- those were the clothes I had. I wore suits to gigs and, a, 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 you know, and, sh- and people kind of went, yeah, he looks like a TV host. Yeah. That looks, you know, you forget, you know, TV is a visual medium. So people go, oh, that's, that, that story checks out. Great. More of that. Yeah. I, I love it. So, so, so who was kind of on the scene with you at that point? Who were you, you battling for, for five minutes up against? Uh, well, the big, the big sort of, uh, I mean, I, I came up with the likes of, David O'Doherty, Daniel Kitson would have been a big influence early on. So Daniel Kitson sort of got me into the comedy cafe. I met my manager through uh, Daniel Kitson, who's the, sort, of, the, um, sort of a cult comic, but amazing. Yeah. The amount of people who've recommended Daniel Kitson to me, because I look like a hipster and I've got a stutter. So it's it's the ultimate, the perfect, perfect. comedian for me, really. Yeah, no, he's he's pretty great. Uh, so uh, David O'Doherty would have been around. Yeah. Um, in those early years, Justin Morehouse, uh, who's a, a comic from Manchester, would have been around. You know, so you, you kind of never forget those, the kids in your class at school. You kind of come up with people. And then there were lots of people kind of in telly at the same time. When I got into telly, it was people like Rob Brydon was doing his first things. David Williams and Matt Lucas were around. They were just doing sort of star stories about to do yeah. Little Britain Lee Francis was around. There was loads of kind of, loads of us, Miranda was around, loads of us around the sort of same level, just trying to start out and lots of energy. Did did you feel at any point that you were going to have to make a decision between TV and live stand-up as such? Because hosting is a very different thing, right? I always viewed stand-up is my job and TV is a side hustle. And yeah. stand-up I have control over. It's a hell of a side hustle. You've done very well with this side hustle, Jimmy, it's going all right. Yeah, I mean, it's more, you see more of that, but I spend more time doing stand-up. I put more work yeah. into the stand-up because the stand-up side of things, I'm in control. And really, yeah. I think life is about where have you got most control? I like having control over what's going on in my life. I like being, the, you know, in charge of my own destiny. And that's what stand-up is. And TV, yeah. ultimately, someone else makes a decision. You can host that show. You don't get to host that show. Someone is hiring and firing. Yeah. So that that feels like the locus of control should be within yourself. So I and it, I, and it, I and it all feeds each other, right? It's not like you're doing 
office work and five aside at the weekend the stand-up makes you better at tv because it's keeping you sharper your reactions better your your jokes your experiences and awareness of what's going on in the world yeah and also tv tv is the shop window tv is the thing that you know people hear you on tv and go oh this this guy's great yeah i'll go and see him live i'll take a punt on him i mean i sometimes feel a bit guilty i sometimes feel like like people that have come to see me that have only ever seen me on like cats does countdown and then, I mean, Cats Does Countdown gets a bit racy sometimes, but basically it's family-friendly TV. And then they come yeah. and see me live and go, oh, this is fucking brutal. <laughs> yeah, covering their child's ears. Yeah. <laughs> Look away. How, how was it when you started to get that level of success then? That Because, again, from the book and from talking to you, you were a massive or are a massive comedy fan. And when you get a certain level of success... Number one, it's not as easy to go and watch shows and be a fan. Like at The Fringe, for example. The Fringe is amazing. Jimmy Carr at the moment probably couldn't... Or it'd be harder for you to go and have a week just enjoying stuff at The Fringe because you're very recognisable. And particularly at comedy shows because of your laugh. You're not Even if you're hiding at the back in a hoodie, you're going to yeah. reveal yourself. Well, it's also... My laugh, is, my laugh is too revealing at comedy shows because either it's too prominent or not prominent enough. Yeah, right. Who had that line? I remember going to see my friend Nick Helm. Do you know Nick? I mean, Nick's an yes, amazing yeah. comic. I went to see Nick live and I was laughing like a drain, like a ha-ha, that weird innie laugh that I've got, yeah. laughing like a drain. Uh, and, and Nick just sort of, on the second time I sort of like had a laughing fit, just turned around to me and went, I went, all right, Jimmy, I don't laugh at your shows. <laughs> such a great, <laughs> such a great line. My favourite, I had a moment, the first time I met Nick Helm was I was was doing The Fringe and I was doing a spoken word show there, but I'd already built an audience in in music and he came up to me afterwards and asked how I am comfortable doing a merch stall afterwards because because I'd just go straight after the show, here's my merch, come buy stuff. And comedians sometimes have a feeling of uncomfortableness with as if you're shilling your stuff. And I was like, I'm working class or I come from Essex and I come from music. That's two areas where we'll flog anything and turn anything into merch. So it had never even crossed my mind that it was unusual to go, the show's finishing, I'll be in the lobby in a minute, you can buy some DVDs, you can buy some T-shirts, come along. But but Nick was confused by that. He's like, what? It it is interesting, that thing of going, (laughs) people being embarrassed by the business of show business. Yeah, yeah. That does strike me as odd, the idea that you go, you know, they want to somehow keep it all separate. But you go, well, ultimately we're trying to sell... Like every show that I do is a sales pitch to come and see another show. Yeah, but I've got a very loyal following. I've got people that come and see me on every tour multiple times and or they'll certainly see every tour once and watch the DVDs and the live shows and the Netflix, whatever, Netflix specials, and will probably buy the book. So I feel very lucky with those people. And every time you're sort of delivering on that and trying to, you're pitching them to go, I'll give you another great night out. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, Speaking of the business side, you obviously get round to talking about your taxes in the book because, sure. I mean, you can't it would feel not, like, and it's It would feel like I really had cheated the audience if you don't give it a mention. And it was, yeah. it's an interesting thing to be publicly shamed and certainly in the middle of cancel culture, uh, it's an interesting thing to talk about what that experience feels like because I think a lot of people would assume because of my the kind of jokes I tell and my stage kind of persona and how I am presenting TV shows that I was cool as a fuck. 
that I was like, oh. Your Jimmy Carr on TV is unflappable. So uh, everyone making a joke about it, you get to shrug and kind of yeah. smile and, and raise your eyebrows, and it is what it is. But no, that, it was a, amazingly that, revealing in the book to find the real-life yeah, impact of that. It was really hard. It was a really hard thing because you're sort of – you don't know how it's going to pan out. You don't know that you'll be forgiven for this. And the, the great sort of advantage I had with having a tax scandal that was like didn't break the law – sort of did things that were like, you know, avoided tax. So you go, well, I didn't break any laws. And you go, well, I'm going to pay it all back. And people went, oh, well, I think we can forgive that. He said he's sorry and he's paying it back. Yeah. So it became, quite, it became quite an easy thing for people that like me to go, oh, no, he's okay. He's like, okay, he did a thing. I might have done a similar thing or not, but I can forgive him. Whereas some yeah. people get cancelled for something that's, you know, their personal life or whatever, and they, there's nothing they can do. There's no way they can yeah, there's, win it, that. It feels like my issue with cancel culture is we don't have the the the, the system set up for forgiveness. Yeah. And actually people are deserving of forgiveness and second chances and everyone fucks up. Yeah, completely. I mean, to be clear, in the book, you're not, it's no, it's not a woe is me. You you take full responsibility. As said, it was something that your accountant put forward, and you went, "All right, well, this sounds good. I'm yes. going to save some money." And it went horrendously wrong to I the mean, literally the level of David Cameron. It couldn't have been. <laughs> it couldn't involved. have gone any worse. Literally, I'm the only person I know that would have been better off financially taking advice from a Nigerian general over email. I, I mean, it it couldn't have gone any worse, but. It kind of, I think in the, in the general scheme of things, I always say, if, if you've got a problem that money can solve and you've got money, then you don't have a problem. Mm. That's what it's for. So I just went on the road and paid it off and fine. Yeah. And again, but it's, it's an interesting one because you've spoken before of, of depression back in your office work days and not being happy with that and knowing a change need to happen. Well, that was more sadness than depression because yeah. I, I make a distinction between sadness and depression in the book where I go, look, if it's circumstantial, if it's about where, what's going on in your life, that tends to be, that's sadness and you can do yeah, something about it. you've got a valid that. reason to be sad. But if you've got depression, there's like, you've got a serotonin imbalance problem in your head. That's a serious yeah. thing. You've got to yeah. seek help. You have to seek yeah. help for that. And I think making that decision, because it strikes me that it's much more, I don't know what you think, but I think it's much more acceptable to say to your friends, I'm depressed than I'm sad. Yeah. It's like sad just feels like you're pathetic. I, I, I talk about mental health on the podcast all the time, yet I don't feel I've been depressed. Because there's been, t- as exactly as you're saying, there's been times I've been re- really down, but something shit had happened. Yeah. That's a valid reason to uh, to be down. Someone's died or this has done this or that. It's like, of course you're going to be down. It's... That's a natural reaction. But when, when Sean Locke died, you know, you don't reach for, for the, uh, you know, SSRI inhibitors because you go, well, yeah. no, it's a, this is absolutely appropriate and fine. Or if you yeah. lose your job or you have a breakup, it's, it's appropriate to be sad. If it lingers for a long time and it can lead to depression, and I'm very, I'm very empathetic to that, but I think it's the idea of going, making that distinction. Is there something I can do about this? Is it circumstantial? Am I, am I being self-pitying? Which is kind of the, yeah. it's very difficult, isn't it, to find the balance between tough love and what's the thing you can do about this and, and also being incredibly compassionate when someone's having a mental health crisis and going, look, you need to, you need to see a doctor. You need to get yourself sorted out. But it's, yeah. it's great that culturally it feels like us having the conversation now is not a conversation that would have happened five or 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And, and again, it's, I guess it's, it's looking at, 
Because again, equally, you shouldn't just r- r- write things off as, oh, I'm just a bit sad, I'll, I'll be all right. These things need addressing. And you suffered, you speak of panic attacks, insomnia, and a sleep disruption still very much being a thing uh, 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 to this day off the back of that. How, how have you kind of addressed that side of things? I, I try and see, I've got an issue with anxiety more than depression. And I, I try and see anxiety as the flip side of creativity. So if you have a creative mind, you are predisposed to having a problem with anxiety because your mind is kind of racing. And, and yeah, you can write a lot of jokes using that energy, but sometimes when you're not thinking about anything, it leads to worry and circular thinking and yes. a level of anxiety that's not comfortable. But that's okay. I, I would, I mean, I can white knuckle it as well. I like the idea of there's a level of, you know, mental health problem where you can, it's perfectly safe to white knuckle just to go, yeah. look, I'd be fine with a bit of anxiety, waking up with a bit of a panic attack. It's okay. It's the first time it happens to you. That's the terrifying thing because you're like a child going, is this my forever now? Do I feel like this forever? And then when it passes, you kind of go, well, okay, I could deal with that again. Yeah. I'm, 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 I completely relate. I'm at the point with my personal insomnia where it's all right at the moment. 90% of the time I don't sleep. I'm thinking of creative stuff. So it all works out. I can have a, a nap. I've not got a real job. I can have a, a, a nap the next day. It'll be fine. But it's that 5%. And when that starts to become a greater percent, where it is, as I said, you're using that same part of your brain to overanalyze bullshit that you don't need to be analyzing. Did you work? Did that, you read the, the insomnia the thing? Did you read the, um, there's an article recently about the special forces techniques what the Navy no. SEALs do to sleep? No, no, no. Uh, there's no. a military Tell. technique for sleep, which is it's worth a Google. It's really interesting. Yeah. Because insomnia is something into. that I think it affects a lot of people and becomes quite defining. And then it's like how, whatever percentage of the time you don't get a good night's sleep. And I find yeah. like I need sleep, but, you know, sometimes it's your mind is racing and you can't get off. And that the um, a lot of the special forces guys do this thing where they imagine the same scenario. So... They they imagine they're in a hammock in a in a dark room and they sort of meditate on that and do a breathing technique with it and they get off yeah. to sleep in two minutes. But it's really worth like thinking about that 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 yeah, med- that, that meditative thing as well of like um, I know Seinfeld talks a lot about when he meditates if he doesn't sleep meditating for an hour is equivalent to eight hours sleep, right? Because you're getting into that that brain pattern of yeah. relaxation. So. Yeah, there's lots of like, we've all got different coping mechanisms for these things. And I think the more that we talk about it, the more normalized it is because there's this, I think people want to feel like I'm normal, but actually there is no normal. As soon as you scratch the surface, everyone's got shit going on. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Well, before I, st- I start to wrap things up, you touch upon in the book, and it's, it's, it's something I find f- fascinating, you touch upon America a little bit. And I think it's f- fascinating in music and comedy and acting and all these things in england we have a big fascination with america and success in america and working in america despite the fact we make so much iconic timeless amazing stuff in the uk what's your feelings uh, towards america i know you did um a netflix panel show that was american yeah in its in its in its essence um yeah what's your feelings is is there this great appeal with america or can you feel is there a miss 
Do you feel you're missing out on something? I think it's okay to be honest about that and to say that you're ambitious. And yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, James Corden's a really good friend of mine and he has made it in the States in a way that's generationally unusual. I mean, it's like yeah. other than a couple of movie stars, there's no one bigger. And he's a legit movie star in his own right. And you go, well, I'm, I know he's my friend because I'm happy for him. And I, yeah. I'm joyful at how successful <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's been. And you go, well, that's amazing. I do aspire to doing more in the States because I can't, I love it. I, I, but I, I love touring the world. I mean, I love Australia and New Zealand, getting to tour down there, doing Iceland, doing the Netherlands, doing, you know, Stockholm. I'll miss out some tremendous places, but I get to tour the world and I love touring in America. I'd like to do more there. I, th- I suppose the fascination in our culture is about where stand-ups roots the roots of stand-up are in the States. And the, that form, it's like, what's America really given us? Well, it's given us jazz music, the Western and stand-up comedy. Yeah. That's all it's given us worth a damn, right? And But yeah. they're all great. And they're really stand, good. <laughs> stand-up comedy for me is the, the greatest of them. And it's an American medium, really, when you look at the the greats yeah. of stand-up comedy, the people that really made it from your, your you know, George Carlin to uh, Lenny Bruce to Richard Pryor, the, 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 the absolute Mount Rushmore of comedy is it's an American sort of language. Yeah. And we're all, I mean, anyone in any industry, you're standing on the shoulders of giants. You're, you're, you know, looking to the greats. I mean, obviously there's British greats as well. When you look at, you know, George Carlin was, was only a little bit before Billy Connolly. They were really sort of at the yeah. same time. I mean, George Carlin came from, uh, he was a DJ that started doing live shows uh, Billy Connolly was a musician that started packing out. He was a m- musician that did funny bits between the songs and then the funny bits just got longer and longer. You know, yeah. when, you, when you watch his early stuff, the banjo's still on stage and occasionally comes out. And then by the end yeah, of it, it's yeah. just him talking. Um, so it's, yeah, I suppose it's that thing of like the love of the heritage makes you want to go and do it. And there is something special about going and doing The Tonight Show and the glamour of turning up at 30 Rock. And, you know, it's just fun. I completely f- f- feel you. Well, uh, before we wrap things up, then uh, you, I, your face lights up every time we talk about stand up and touring and and life on the road. How's that feeling going forward? Obviously, something key in the book is that you've got a family now, and that yeah. was one of the things that you wanted to, to, to document some stuff so your your child could 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 read about this. How's that? looking going forward i guess i mean it's it's interesting it's a bit more difficult to leave the ha- i mean i i like being a home bird anyway i like being at home so yeah that thing of like even if i tour i try and make it home to my own bed and be, be i'm around more than most dads i think i get to be around more than most dads because i mainly tour in the uk although i travel the world but it's for short periods and i'm around during the day and yeah. i work nights he's my kid's young he's not up at night yeah, it, yeah, I mean, yeah, I imagine, yeah. I can imagine a scenario in a few years where it becomes more difficult because it's, he's at school during the day and I'm out and whatever. But listen, it's going to be fine. It's going to be yeah. fine. It's, it's a wonderful adventure. I'm, I kind of view becoming a parent. It's that lovely quote about it's like having a medical procedure where your heart now lives outside your body. Amazing. It's beautiful, but it's, it's slightly strange and, you kind of want to be around him all the time. And then, but then it's nice. It's the, the heart grows fonder. You go and do a show and then you're looking forward to getting home and it's great. I love it. I love it. And, and thankfully I've done some warm up shows with the new material for the, you know, refreshing the tour and 
making sure I got new jokes for people that saw me pre-pandemic. I want to have new stuff. And it's just as brutal as ever. It's not softened me <laughs> at all. That's good. It's good to know. It's not taken any edge off. Nothing. Um, well, as much as 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 stand up is obviously a dream. Eight out of ten cats and big fat quiz of the year must both be absolute dream jobs, right? You get to you're in that position of of hosting and holding it all together and just getting to enjoy all of these wonderful people. Sometimes you do, I'll be honest with you, especially on Big Fat Quiz, occasionally I'll forget I'm in the show. Occasionally yeah. you yeah. go, oh, this is good. I love this guy. Oh, I love Oh, I love David Mitchell and Catherine I, Ryan. I, this is good. I and mean, then you go, oh, hang I, on a second. I better say something funny. I'm fucking in this one. I maintain that my appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast is one of his worst episodes because I kept forgetting, because I was a big fan and listening all the time, I was just tuning in to hearing J- Joe Rogan talk and then going, oh, I'm the guest. I'm, <laughs> I'm, meant, to, I'm meant to do something here, aren't I? I'm just sitting again. yeah, this is good. Ah, So, I, yeah, I completely relate to that. You can have all those amazing people in front of you and go, I'll just sit back. Yeah, and, I often get it on like QI. I'll often be in like QI and you go, oh, that's interesting, Sandy. What? Oh, hang on. <laughs> you've got to be part of this well i'll i'll wrap things up um what is ahead obviously touring has had a big impact it's changed a lot the pandemic has probably made you obviously it's made you reflect because you've got your book but it's probably made you look at what you miss and what you don't miss what's your 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 your, your vision going forward I mean, well, my, but the first thing I would say is, listen, if you've listened to this and you're a big fan of the podcast, but not a big fan of me, don't worry about it. Buy a ticket to something else. Could be a musical, could be a music show, but go and support a local venue because the only way they survive is if people buy tickets and yeah. they're, they're on their arse. I mean, they really are all of them around the country. And I think the only thing that the full houses is the only, they make their money between 80 and 20, uh, 80 and hundred percent capacity. That's where they make mm-hmm. their coin. So you've really got to push that for them to uh, to do okay. So that's kind of one of my things of like, I, I'm trying to encourage people to go and see more shows, not necessarily mine, anything at all. I've got the book coming out, which is lovely. And I'm enjoying kind of, you know, chatting about that and talking to people. And then I've got a new TV show coming out next year I'm really excited about called I Literally Just Told You, which right. my friend Richard Bacon came up with. It's a mental idea and it shouldn't work, but it does. I literally just tell you the answers to the questions and then ask you the questions. And it's, <laughs> that it's, sounds bizarre. It's crazy, but it just works. I think it m- might be the best thing I've ever done on telly. Amazing. I can't wait to, to see that. Well, I won't take up any more of your time. Oh, no, it's, it's been, been an, an absolute, absolute pleasure. pleasure, man. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on the Thank show. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I've loved talking, and I look forward to all that's ahead. Thank you, man. Take care. Be lucky. Thank you, mate. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Jimmy Carr. Um, We covered a lot, right? And I was really pleased because I felt we had numerous, we went in numerous directions that he's probably not g- gone in much in in uh, in interviews and conversations. And yeah, he was really honest and open about everything. As he is in his book, as said, I recommend it. I'm halfway through now and I'm really enjo- enjoying it. So yeah. That was a good episode, right? As said, if this was if this was indeed your first time 
jump into the back catalogue. Who can I mention that I didn't mention in the first section? Comedians, come on, man. So, Guz Khan, Jade Adams. Honestly, there's loads, but I'm drawing just blank after blank, so you'll have to deal with that, all right? It is what it is. But there's been loads of comedians on, and loads of actors, and loads of writers, and loads of radio presenters, all sorts of people from all different areas. So go and check it out. Speaking of ch- checking it out, check me out next week because I'll be here as usual. As you've, you've listened till the end, I'll tell you, next week's guest, Sleaford Mods. Rare interview with the pair of the lads, r- rather than just Jason. Really good chat. You're going to enjoy it. I know a lot of you have been asking for it for a long time, so um, I'm pleased to finally deliver that one. I've been Scroobius Pip. This has been the Distraction Pieces podcast. Episode 413 with the wonderful Jimmy Carr. So until next week, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.